If you would, open your Bible to 1 John chapter 2 this morning. 1 John chapter 2. morning we come and we face a rather large portion of God's Word reminding us of the love that we are to have one for another. But before we get there, we need to be reminded of what we've learned so far. And that is, John tells us that he is writing that we might have joy, that we might have fellowship with God, that we would have assurance of that reality. Last week we looked at the reality uh, that John likes to say, use the word, uh, I'm right so that you may know this. He wants us to know some things. He he says in chapter 5, verse 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That is the backdrop to all of what John writes in his letter. You have to take the world as John sees it, as God has revealed the Uh, the the reality of the spiritual world to him, and it is a very dark world. Now, there are a lot of theological opinions about the state of man today and the spiritual condition of of things, but the reality is those theological opinions really don't matter, especially as we come to interpret this letter. What matters is what God has inspired to be written, and what God has written is that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John gives us the encouragement that we know that we are of God. And it is in that dark world that John continues to write that we can have great joy in fellowship with God. He he encourages us that we were made to glorify God. That we were meant to have God as the aim of everything in our lives. And he points to the reality of God's holiness. That In Him is light, and there is no darkness at all. In fact, the underlying Greek means there is no capacity for any unrighteousness in God. And so we are to live our lives glorifying this Holy One who has created us. And far too often we miss that mark. We idolize lesser things in our generation. We run from trusting in the Lord alone to trusting in politicians, in money, in health, in prosperity, in a numerous, in numerous other things, but we don't set our heart upon the Lord. And it is in those moments that John, I think, gives his greatest encouragement. He goes on to tell us that it is in those moments where we idolize and when we don't honor the Lord that we must be reminded as we repent and turn to the Lord that we have Christ Himself as our advocate. That this morning, pleading for you and I in accordance with the will of God and the decrees of God set down before the very foundation of time, before the creation of the world, there is Jesus and He is pleading His blood for you and I that we can have full assurance that we are in fellowship with Him. I don't come this morning with a gospel that tells you to straighten up and fly right and then God will love you. 
I come with a gospel that says God has set his love upon you before the foundation of the world. Now allow that to permeate all of your thinking that you might not sin. It's so important that we put the gospel before our works. There's such a religious tendency to put our works first that God might love us. That's not the gospel at all. That's a damnable lie. John writes that we might have full assurance and that we might run from sin, but we're only going to do that as fallen sinners when we understand that we have a loving advocate who will never leave us or forsake us. And so he goes on to say that the test of our faith is not that we would have emotional experiences. The test of our faith is not that we would have some subjective experience. Although we have our experiences and the Bible doesn't discount them, they are not ultimate. The ultimate test of our faith is do we keep his commandments? One brother Uh, helpfully pointed out the reality that the word keeping, obeying uh, the commandments of God in this context really gives a view that we are to guard the commandments of God. It doesn't explain that we would keep the law perfectly in our own right, but rather that we would guard the commandments of God, that we would cherish them, that we would love them, that we would honor what God has told us in how to love our neighbor and how we are to love Him. What John says is, if in fact you really are in Christ, if you really are a believer then you will live a life where in growing measure you seek to honor the Lord in all of His commands. The the honoring of the commands flows out of a life that has been regenerated by the sovereign hand of grace. That's what he tells us. And so we can come, and many will, and proclaim that they are believers, that they know Jesus, but they will have no desire for the things of God. They will have no appetite For the word of God. They will have no passion. To grow in the likeness of Christ. And if that is the case. John emphatically says. Those people are self deceived. Having said all of this. For our joy. And that we might rest in our fellowship with God. And in God alone. He moves to a new doctrinal distinction. And one that I think we undersell. One that I think we put under, we, we, we take these next passages and we allow the world to inform the words. I wish that we would allow what God has done to shape how God allows us to see what these words really mean. That we would understand how to love the body of Christ according to the love of Christ, not according to what our culture tells us love is. And so with that in mind, if you would do honor to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired word this morning, stand to your feet as we begin to read in verse 7 of chapter 2, John's first letter. Here, John, writing again under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that dwells in everyone who is in Christ this morning, he writes, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard at the same time. It is a new commandment. 
that I am writing to you. Which is true in Him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says that he is the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of God to you and I today. May he write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence this morning acknowledging the reality that in our lives we have far too often passed over passages like this flippantly. Might the weight of this text weigh in on our hearts for the rest of our lives. Might we not leave this morning the same as when we entered. Might we have greater understanding of the magnificent grace that you have poured out upon your children by your divine plan alone. And might we love our brothers all the more for it. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. You know, really, we can take the entire letter of 1 John and break it down into two classifications. And I'm not suggesting a hard and fast rule, but really everything that John is writing can fall into one of two categories. Things that hinder our fellowship with God and therefore rob us of joy. He wants to warn us about living lives where we say we belong to Jesus, but we don't really have fellowship with God. And so we are constantly exhausted and uh, depleted of our joy. That's the first category. The second is we can take each statement as a test of our position in Christ, of our true standing before God. The Bible tells us that many False teachers will come into the world. The Bible tells us that many people will make professions of faith all throughout the generations. But in the final day of judgment, there will be many who believe that they were Christians. And Christ will look at them and say, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. So as we break this passage down... It is important that we see again the simple truth that there is no joy without fellowship with God and there really is no assurance of our fellowship with God and therefore no joy without knowing beyond any doubt that we are of God, that we are included in verse 2, that we have had our sins atoned for. That we have a propitiation in Christ and that we are in Christ ourselves. And so John writes in that direction again, both with an encouragement in the direction of joy that we would continue to live our lives loving one another, but also as a test of our faith that we would be confronted if we in fact are a false convert. He writes, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The, command, the old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. So what does John mean here by no new commandment? Rather, one you had from the beginning, but then he immediately pivots and he says, but this is a new commandment. It, it, it seemingly is a confusing statement. Then if we think back, Jesus has in fact said that 
loving the brothers in the body, which is what the entire passage is about, is a new commandment. John chapter 13. A new commandment, Jesus says, I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So how can John say, I'm not writing something new, but this is an old commandment, and yet come back and lean back in the direction. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. Is this double talk? Is this just nonsensical? Well, it it is old and new. That's what he's saying. It's both. It's old in the sense that you already know this if you're in Christ. This is such an elementary doctrine to what it means to be in Christ, to be part of the body. You received this commandment early on in your Christian walk. From the very first time that you came to understand Christ and your need for Him and your sinful state, you understood almost intuitively through the message of the gospel that you have received such a fantastic and great love that it's only reasonable that you are to also love your brother likewise. This is part and parcel to the Christian faith. It's not new. This is just review, class. That's what John is saying here. It's old in the fact that this commandment is found even in the Old Testament in the Levitical system. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is not new. God always intended that we would love Him and love our neighbor. And very specifically, that we would love those in the body of Christ uniquely. But Jesus said it is a new commandment. John said this is, in some sense, a new commandment. Well, how is it new then? If we've always known that we're to love, how is it new? It's new in this sense. That now, in light of the grace that you have received of Almighty God, Church, and of God alone, you now can actually love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You now have the power For that to be possible, ruling and reigning in your life. You have an advocate this morning. You have one who is atoned, who has bore all of your sins in his own body. And who is at the right hand of majesty this morning, pleading that blood. You have every reason to be a loving person. In the Old Testament, they were commanded to love, but this was such a burden. It was so hard. They were under the law and they didn't seemingly have the same power that you and I have today as New Testament believers. In the New Testament, Christ has come and He has ultimately carried out the commands of the Old Testament. He is the one who loved His people perfectly. He loved His brethren without fail. And so you and I this morning can love with the law no longer hanging over our head. We're not this morning seeking to please God. 
By loving perfectly. I don't know if you've ever met those people in the church. Boy, if everyone would just love the way that I loved, the whole world would be right. I mean, if everybody could just get their act together and see the world the way that I see the world and love according to what I think love is, we would all be okay. There's so much of that trash in the church today. There's so much subjective unloading of what people think about love into the text instead of God and His love dictating what love really means in the body of Christ. There's so many social constructs and different man-centered ideas that ebb and flow into the church and, and that ultimately cause division in the body where we don't love one another according to what Christ has done, but we love we, we seek to judge each other for the subjective attempt that we have at loving. And here, what John is writing is that in a new sense, church, because of the propitiation of Christ, because of His atonement, because of His sacrifice, because He kept the law perfectly. You're no longer under the same weight. Jesus did everything lovingly, perfectly in your place. It's finished. You see, what saves people is the love of Christ, not your love. It's not how loving you can be that brings others to Christ. It's the love that Christ demonstrated to the world that brings sinners to redemption. Because the love of Christ is a love that was set upon His world, His kingdom, His people before the foundations of the earth. If you are in me, Jesus says, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing in John chapter 15. Jesus is saying there, in one sense, you can't love your brother without me. But we have Christ. We have been given Christ. We are now given the power of Christ and the presence of the Spirit in a way that we are free to love according to the Word of God. It's a very new sense because we are in Christ, Christ now. John writes that we may not sin, that, that we may not sin against our brothers is included, that we may positively love our brothers is part of why he's Writing, And we can only do that because we have been given a new nature by the divine hand of God himself. We've been given the life of Christ. We've been given the power again of the Holy Spirit. Far too often, the church looks out and takes its cue, takes her cue from the world about how to love. The the world will constantly rail against the church. The world will constantly make the accusations that Satan wants the world to make against the church. And so the church starts to believe what the world has to say over the Word of God. The church starts to believe, well, we better get love right according to what these people say. The entire world lies in the power of the evil one. Our love must be informed and fashioned by the person and the work of Christ, not by the syllabubs of modern thought. 
Otherwise, we will fall into error. And what we will wind up with is we will be convinced in our own strength that we are loving people. And we will have lived our lives not loving at all. John writes here that we are to love our brothers. That we are to put a priority on loving our fellow believers. And the world is not going to share in that love. The world's not going to understand that love. The world is not, in the truest sense, even able to love in the context of this letter. But Christians can. Because Christ has brought us into an entirely new dominion. Verse 8 of chapter 2. The darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The whole New Testament really bears witness to this reality that the world was plunged into darkness. That the world is neck deep in sin. That the world is alienated and hostile to God and to God's people. That is the narrative of all of Scripture. But God in His mercy pursues His people and pulls them out as a peculiar people and as He has set his love upon them. And so they are different than the world around. Second Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is the sense in which this commandment is new. We've been empowered by Christ because we are new crea- uh, creations in Christ. And then the the verse that actually precedes verse 15 in 2 Corinthians also. From now on, Paul writes, Therefore we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard Him thus no longer. What he's saying is that being a Christian has changed everything about the way that we see the world. We don't love, we don't interact with, we don't play, we don't do anything according to the dictates of the world's viewpoint. Our whole outlook on life has changed because we are in Christ. Nothing was like it was before. We're not loving people to use them. We're not loving people so that we can build our kingdom. We're not loving people so that they will think we are loving. We're loving people because we have been loved with an everlasting love. That's why we love. Everything has become new. You see, the world is dark. We are of God, but the whole world, again, lies in the power of the evil one. And we have to interpret these verses connected to that context. We are of God. We walk differently. We walk in the light. Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We are new in Christ. We have the capacity and the capability to genuinely love. Have you ever stopped to consider that reality? That coming to Christ didn't merely mean that you escaped hell, but that you have been transformed into something completely new? That your entire life should look differently from your lost neighbor because you've been given the capacity to love as Christ Loved. Again, this bears out in all of the New Testament. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transformed us, transferred us rather, into the kingdom of his beloved Son. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Jesus says of himself in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It is only in light of Christ that we are able to love well. It's nonsensical to go to the world and to make up platitudes about how the world should be more loving. The world's not going to be more loving. The world is in the power of the evil one. They believe their, their father, Satan, the father of all lies. They will not love in the context, in the way that John is writing, that we should love one another. So what is the test? The test is here explicitly in verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This really is a picture. It, it, it is a contrast. It is, it is John saying, look in verse 11. This is the backdrop of what the world's kind of love really looks like. Make sure that the way that you love other people isn't like this. This is a picture of a twofold problem. One, that those who are in the world, those who are lost, they are in the darkness. The world is a dark place. They are sinned against continually, victimized in many ways. They are plunged into a system of wickedness. But that's not the only problem. It's not the only problem of why the world doesn't love the way that a Christian loves. The greater problem is this. The darkness is also in them. Look at what he says. Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. See, so many people rise to tell our nation how to live apart from Christ. There's so many men who are self-proclaimed evangelists and Bible teachers and what they will do is they'll stand in very public platforms and they'll say, if everyone would just quit sinning and love their neighbor, but they leap over the gospel and never explain the love of Christ. And so that love will never ultimately come to pass because the world is not looking for the light. They are in the dark, but it's worse than that. The darkness has clouded their eyes. They can't even see the light. So many people come to man-made systems of love, man-centered thought, but really the problem is that we can't love according to those systems because they don't bear the light of who Christ really is. That they don't ultimately display Christ in all of His fullness. It is an absolute, abject error to look to the world for instruction in how to love if you are a Christian. To borrow from the world thoughts of what it means to love your wife, your neighbor, your children, apart from the Word of God, is to wander off into error. Because their type of love is not rooted in Christ. 
The foundation for worldly love is self-centered and man-centered. You see, the, the blindness that John is writing about here, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because, his, uh, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We as Christians see this all the time. We, we, we do the most loving thing that we could ever do. We share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We proclaim a, a message of repent and believe that Jesus died and rose again. That all who would believe upon him would not perish but have everlasting life. And when that message is proclaimed into the darkness of this world, do you know what the world does? The world rejects that light. So many people want to live in this non-biblical world where they can look around and, and believe that man is basically good. You can't hold that position if you believe the Gospels. You can't hold that position if you believe the Gospels because Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And what happened when the light of the world came into the world? The lost world crucified Him. They hated Him. They despised Him. Now all the while they, they said that they were probably loving people. They were good and religious and had carried out the commandments. They had done everything their rabbi had told them. They, they, they had lived according to the, Pharisaic, the, the Pharisaical law. They had, they had done all of their religious duties. Everything in their own conscience. They were right in and of themselves. The problem was they hated the light. And why? Because their own eyes, their own spiritual hearts are the problem. We're blinded by our own sin. So many people refuse the gospel because God has not removed the, 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 the blindness of their spiritual eyes. John really is here providing a twofold encouragement to us. Remember that the Gnostics are really who he's writing against. That they are always in the background. That this group of people that, that puffed themselves up as having a higher life and that, that, that their views were, were um, and their experience were, were superior, that to really be saved and know you had to have this special knowledge. And John says no. John says you'll really know whether or not they are Christians simply by this. Do they love one another the way that I have loved you? He also writes, I think, not only to dissuade us from being in fellowship with false teachers, with the Gnostics, and that rears its head in our day in so many different ways. He also writes that we would know who our brothers are, that we might love them in sincerity. He wants us to love the body of Christ. He, he, he wants us to be able to see false teachers for who they are. He wants us to see error in doctrine so that we might not live our lives loving each other out of systems of false doctrine. He also, I think, wants us to know who is not in Christ because we will still love them. It will be just in a different way. If there's individuals who are not our brothers in Christ, it doesn't mean we hate them. 
But it does mean we pray for them differently. We live before them. We share the gospel. We beg them to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask them the question, not have you had some religious experience that leads you on the authority of your pastor to believe that you might be potentially saved. That's not what he wants us to do. He wants us to live lives that that we interact with people who we're not sure are in Christ. That we boldly ask them, are you in Christ? And if not, repent and believe, come to Him today. You see, we're not to love as the world loves. So then the question is, what does an unloving life look like? Well, one, to be unloving means to walk in darkness. Titus chapter 3, verse 3, Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now some may protest this morning and say, I don't think that's who I really was before Christ. I think I was pretty good. Well, the Bible says none is good, no, not one. So you'll have to get over that verse before you can argue against Titus 3 verse 3. The world, ultimately beloved, we have to see is really good at veiling its sin. There's a reason why PR is a booming business. Because the world wants to live in malice and hatred in the darkness while at the same time putting a veneer of the light around their lives. That's what the world wants to do. There are people in the church that, that All of the apostles ultimately encourage us to be careful and watch out for who will come in as wolves in sheep's clothing. They will appear to be loving. They will appear to be kind. They will appear to teach correctly. But ultimately what is in their hearts is what Titus writes about. Foolishness, disobedience, being led astray and leading others astray. Slaves to their passions and pleasures. Passing their days in malice and envy. Hating, hated by others and hating one another. We should not be deceived into believing in this kind of love that gives approval to the darkness. And that is happening so often in our generation. Entire churches take the word love in the Bible and apply it broadly to give approval to sin. And the Bible doesn't do that one time. Not once. You can't take what, is, what God calls evil and call it good and still be walking in love. And the second that you do that, you are no longer loving. That's first. Uh, an unloving life is a life that is walking in darkness and giving approval to that darkness. The second thing is, <clears throat> is that to be unloving and live an unloving life... Uh, it, you will find these people not knowing where they are going. Look in verse 11. And does not know where he is going. Ultimately, to to live an unloving, harsh, critical life is to be an individual who doesn't always have the reality of the Lord and His judgment before you. The ultimate end of your life and existence is not in mine. You live your life for everything in this world, not for the world that is to come. The person is ruled by their passions and everything that is in the here and now. And, and this type of love, the worldly type of love, the really unloving life, is a life that is rooted in all of the circumstances and conditions of this world. 
There are many people who will claim to be Christians and claim to love, but if the conditions change, the circumstances change, and it's no longer comfortable, they're out. They put qualifications on loving other people that are found nowhere in Scripture. They don't know where they're going. They don't have an aim of their love. It's kind of love that is conditioned on what happens to me. It's not the kind of love that flows out of how I have been loved. Ultimately, there is no reverence for God in their love. An unloving life is a life that that interacts with people, again, without the judgment of God in view. Without having the notion that every act and every word and every attitude will be reckoned with. Everything that we do in interacting with our neighbor is going to be accounted for. And it is either paid by Christ in His vicarious death and resurrection, or it will be bore by the wrath of God on the individual sinner for all of eternity. And to live an unloving life is to just say, well, I don't care. I will live according to my own passions. I will love you if I want to love you. I will love you if I like you. I think I've shared this with you before, but in the Clatworthy household, after 16 wonderful years of marriage, I know one thing for sure. If my wife looks at me in a crowded room and says, Jay, I love you, I know I've had it. Because Sarah knows her Bible well enough to know that she is commanded of God to love me at all times. That is God's call on her life regardless of how much of a nitwit I'm being. Amen. That's right. When she looks at me and says, I like you. Boy, my heart jumps out of my chest. I'm so excited because I know in those moments, it's beyond just love. She really does like me in those moments. And there's so few, I I, I enjoy them. I'm kidding. (laughs) But the point is this. To love is not rooted in the condition of other people. How many times I hear from Christians, well, I would love this person, but... I would love that person, but... That's not the way that a Christian loves. Now, there may be difficulty in the relationship because of whatever you're filling the blank in with, but it doesn't absolve you of the responsibility to move in the direction of the other person and to love them with the same kind of love that you have been loved with in Christ. Finally, this type of worldly love, an unloving life, produces a stumbling block, verse 10, in the lives of others. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So this is in the positive sense, but if we interpret it negatively, those who are in the darkness will live lives seeking to ultimately bring other people into sin. In fact, the Bible tells us this, that the world will be absolutely astonished that we don't join them in their flood of debauchery. The unloving life entices others into sin. But real love doesn't lead in that direction. It runs from sin. It seeks the better spiritual position of the other individual. And so John comes and he bluntly, because he knows that this false 
fictitious kinds of, of love are all over in the world. And, and, and church, can you just wake up for five seconds and hear me on this? I know that I point out the reality of so much false doctrine in our day. And sometimes that's vague and unhelpful. But I want you to know every time I point out the darkness spiritually in our community and in our world and the reality that so many churches have diluted down to the gospel into decisional garbage that ultimately will not save the reason why that bothers me is not because I'm angry. It's because I love you. Amen. It's because false gospels really do damn people to hell. It's because Paul really has given a positive command that all of us, not just your pastor, speak the truth in love. That the truth matters as the substance of our love. And so Paul, knowing that all of these Gnostics and these false teachers are going to come and they're going to peddle a kind of love and they're going to build churches where everybody comes in on Sunday morning and they smile at each other and they act like they're so happy and then they go out the back door and they piss and moan about everything. Excuse me. They throw a fit about everything. I apologize. He knows that that's going to happen and that that's not real love. That's not seeking the, the better spiritual position of the brethren in the church. That's not with Christ in view. That's not with the, the doctrines that the apostles have laid down for the church in view. So love in a way that is in accordance with the Word of God. And John comes here and he bluntly just lays it out. Whoever says that he is in the light, and these Gnostics were saying that, we have this special knowledge, we have this wonderful light, we are great people, and yet hates his brother, is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What John is saying here is the individual who is cynical and critical and unkind and impatient and unloving towards his brothers and sisters in Christ and nitpicks every little thing that does not matter and has no bearing on the glory of Christ, that is an individual market down that does not belong to Christ. To claim to be in Christ but to hate the body of Christ reveals that you are a liar. It's one of the reasons, and I can't stay here for long, but it's one of the reasons why I think it's a really good idea to know what the church believed historically. How many of you in here believe in the resurrection? How many of you believe that when someone is absent from the body, they're present with the Lord? Then that means that everyone who has been in the body of Christ historically and written about the faith once for all delivered to the saints is before the Lord this morning and they are people that we should love. Now, it's not in the same way that we love one another who are still living and vibrant in our day and age and the context of our lives can be different. But there are so many people that creep into the church and they throw stones at doctrines that the church has loved and has lived on for so long and they do it ignorantly and arrogantly. And what winds up happening is there's this slow fade to change the quality of the kind of love that is in the body of Christ. So it's so important that we know what the Bible actually teaches doctrinally, and our brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us can help us so well in that endeavor. 
So what does Christian love look like? Well, it's the opposite of everything that we've been talking about to this point. The Christian has been taken again from darkness to light. Their eyes have been opened. The central doctrine of the Christian's life is the gospel. The Christian's not content to preach a gospel. If Brian said, hey Jay, I'm going to sing three songs and then you come up and you preach a gospel, I would say, Brian, you take a flying leap. Because it is not a gospel. There's not many ways that we can come to Jesus. There is, a, there is the definite article, gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, as described in the Word of God. Amen. And that one, God, that one doctrine is the doctrine that regulates every other doctrine and the entire life of the Christian. It is the doctrine that really fuels and informs what love genuinely is. The Christian sees the miraculous reality in the gospel that they have been set free from sin, not by their own power, but by the power of the Spirit of Almighty God and that alone. They say that God has loved them with an everlasting love before the foundation of time, that that God set His love upon them individually. He's loved them in that way. That God, by His mercy and kindness alone, sent Christ into the world, and now Christ is in them. They know that this life is not all that there is. They know that this world is passing away, that the darkness is dwindling, and that the true light of the gospel has come into the world. Knowing then the miraculous gift of grace, they are free to be gracious and loving to others. They're not trying to convince everyone else, look at me, I love perfectly. No, they are living lives that declare, I have been loved perfectly. I'm trying to figure the rest out. I'm trying to love like Jesus because He has loved me perfectly. The whole tone of their lives is that other Christians in in varying degrees are going to be the aim of their... they, They want to help other believers... They want to see other believers grow in Christ-likeness. They'll give up everything so that someone might have a better grasp of who Christ really is. They would give everything away to see Christ worshipped in spirit and in truth by all of their neighbors. They don't live for the things of the here and now. They're not loving people so they get something in return. They're loving people so God might be glorified. That's what John is telling us about loving the brothers. Does your love, church, change your fellow church member? Does it encourage them in the direction of worshiping the one true living God? Of knowing not a gospel, but the gospel. Of bringing glory not to LifePoint Baptist Church, not to Baptist in general, not to American Christianity, but to the one who loved us before the foundation of the world. That's the question that's being asked here this morning. In this passage, Christians are people who see the light. God has opened their blinded eyes. John Newton wrote about that in Amazing Grace. I once was blind. He's saying I was once one of those people in verse 11. The darkness had blinded my eyes. But now by the very amazing grace of God alone. 
I can see. I can see that at one time I was a sinner. At one time I hated other people. and They hated me. I didn't care. You know, I love that. That's one of the Facebook things I love the most is when people say, I don't care if people hate me. Really? Then why are you posting about it? <laughs> Our words betray us so often, don't they? Christians are people who see that God has loved them with an everlasting love. They, they see that they lived in their own darkness happily. They see that they were in the power of Satan and that Satan was breathing down their neck in so many ways, but God marvelously and by a work of grace and that alone ransomed them out of the darkness and brought them into the light. And so now they don't look out at, at the nation or at their neighbor or across the street and go, boy, I just wish those people would straighten up. If the whole world could just be Baptist, we'd all be okay. I mean, we'd be one big potluck all the time and we'd be fine. They're not nasty people like that. They're individuals that know my neighbor at his worst, on his worst day, is exactly like I am apart from Christ. And my neighbor, in the moments where I am so fed up with them for doing and whatever it is, is really just me outside of Christ. And so everything in my life is going to be to display the goodness of Christ in my life that they may know Him. Because I'm not satisfied by having good neighbors. And as a church member, I'm not satisfied because everyone in the church is perfect. I'm satisfied because I have been loved with the everlasting love of God and now I can love others around me in light of that circumstance. That's what he is writing about here. It's not a, a man-centered... You know, there's a reason why we don't come in here and sing Amazing decisions. What a great job I did. I was once kind of bad, but now I'm better. That's not what we sing. We sing amazing grace. I once was blind. I was in the darkness and my eyes were blinded and I couldn't see. But now I can see. I can love my neighbor. I can rejoice in Christ and in Christ alone. I, my, my love is not conditioned. Ooh. There are so many marriage books that are tearing marriages apart inside the body of Christ today. Uh, books that lend in the direction of, well, she needs to fill up his love tank and he needs to fill up her love tank. And I just go, well, good luck with that. Because I'm honoring enough, if she filled my love tank, I'd just get a bigger tank. <sighs> I'd move the goalpost. I don't need... Someone else to fill my love tank. My cup overflows with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And so I can love out of that great love. Our eyes have been opened to the gospel, to the love of God towards us, to the reality that even when we were sinful, hating Him and hating His church, man, if Paul could give his testimony this morning, about how God loved him. He was this religious, arrogant man who probably believed that he was a loving guy going around persecuting the church, despising the name of Jesus, and the Lord shows up on the road to Damascus, and he, what's he do? He opens Paul's eyes to the reality of the gospel. You are a sinner, and you're sinning against me, and you're sinning against my church, but I have loved you, Paul, with an everlasting love that you may take my gospel to the Gentiles. 
Now run, son. Love them. And how does, John, how does Paul, from that point, how does Paul's love manifest itself to the church? Did he sit down and say, I love you, pumpkins. You're so wonderful. You should gather together on Sunday morning and just pat each other on the back. Nope. He writes doctrine for us. He loves us by giving clarity about who Jesus is that we would have a greater, more solid understanding of the Christ in whom we hope so that we have a greater foundation from which we love the others uh, from. You see, Jesus, again, is the one who has given us the ability to love well. Now, don't misunderstand me. I, I do think that this is a problem, too. I think that some people who are more theologically minded. And if you're here today, some people just, that's not the way that the Lord has wired them. They're not as theologically minded. And I think that that's okay as long as you're willing to let your brothers and sisters in Christ serve you well in those areas. Theology does matter, but it's not the ultimate end. Some people almost are in love with their doctrine. And that's not the point. The point of doctrine is to bring greater clarity to the glory of Christ that we might then go on to love others out of that clarity. It's not just merely a theology for the sake of being right. It's theology that ultimately acts as lenses through which we see Christ. It's not theology that stops in our minds. It's theology that takes its way all the way to our heart, and then ultimately we love our neighbor and our community out of those understandings and those lenses. Loving ultimately is this, beloved. Loving means to walk like Christ. Keeping, guarding the commandments of Christ, as it turns out, is all about love. The first table of the law in the Ten Commandments is about loving God first. And the second is about loving our neighbor. And we remember in Matthew chapter 22 that familiar passage where the Pharisees, those who loved their own theology before they really loved Jesus, heard that he had silenced the Sadducees and they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, God bless him, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and all of the prophets. As it turns out, there's so many people that they build up fictitious laws inside the body of Christ. You must dress this way. You must act this way. You must have this kind of hair. You have to end the whole list, right? It's a misunderstanding of the law altogether or applying laws above what the Bible records. Then there are others who come to the actual commands of Christ and they read them in such a wooden way and they have a little checklist so they can feel good about how they're living up to the law but they're not loving at all. And as it turns out, we don't even begin to understand what the law is until we understand the love of Christ. Until we know that we have been loved with an everlasting love. Until we realize that everything that has been commanded from the mouth of God is first for His glory and then also for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. We don't understand and can't guard the law. 
See, beloved, Satan will put a thousand reasons in your way as to why you should not love your neighbor. Satan will put in your mind a thousand reasons why you should get up out of this church and leave and never come back. Satan will put a thousand excuses in your path as to why you are too busy to spend time praying with one of your fellow church members or serving a brother or sister in need. Satan will supply you everything you need to live a life in the love of the world. Jesus puts one reason before you to actually love the body of Christ with all of her faults and all of her brokenness, all of her foolishness and all of her error. And that one reason is the cross that he bled and died on. Jesus is an individual who bled and died that we would understand his love and love out of that great love. Because he has put hate to death there in his body, we are now free to love. Some people far too often in the body of Christ put limits on how far they can love other people. Now I do believe that part of love is wisdom. I think there's a component of love doesn't permit sin and we need to be careful. And I think we've gone over that. Uh, We need to be careful about that. But Jesus didn't limit his love towards his church in any respect. In fact, John chapter 13 verse 1 records this reality. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world... He loved them to the end. That one phrase, He loved them to the end, should be an encouragement and the greatest instruction to our hearts. If Christ has loved us to the end, all the way to the cross, all the way through the mockings and the beating and all of that, then why can we not love one another? Beloved, I believe this. Love in the shadow of the cross is a different kind of love altogether. When we understand the love with which we have received the the lavish love of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are then free to grow into the love of Christ. We, We don't have to sit here and go, man, I've been really rude to my fellow church members. You know, um, I need to just put on some airs. We become people who can be honest about who we are and that we struggle to love well because we know that we have an advocate this morning. We know He has loved us perfectly. And so out of that reality, we then can go on to love others well. And I pray that is your desire. Would you pray with me? Father God, You are so gracious to Your children. You are so loving and so patient and so kind. Father, we are so prone to rest in the love of this world. We are so willing far too often to reduce down what it means to love your body. Father, the world, I believe, in some measure doesn't understand the gospel because we don't make you our first aim to love and then also your church. Father, would you work in our hearts and lives gratitude for the fact that you've opened our eyes that we no longer stumble around we know where we're going we know that we're coming home to you we know that you will receive us in 
the way the prodigal's father received him. We know that you are a God who delights in showing forgiveness. Might you make us people individually who are not cynical and critical and harsh, but might we be people who love your word, who grow in understanding of your truth, and who love out of a vibrant understanding.